Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Jason Radisson, CEO and founder of Mobo, an HR automation platform that's raised over $9 million in funding. Jason, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on, Brett. No problem. So as I was preparing for this interview, checking out your LinkedIn, I saw that you were at Uber in 2015, and a lot of amazing things happened after Uber, but I'd love to start there. Take us back to 2015 and, and what you were doing at Uber. Oh, gosh. So I joined Uber kind of at an interesting inflection point. So it was relatively late in the U.S. expansion, relatively early in the global expansion. And my specific mission was to build the team and get the company ready to launch in Nevada. That was my my very first mission at Uber, including Las Vegas. That must have been a uh, pretty hostile market to move into, right? Like, I think even to this day... Their Uber is not fully functional in Las Vegas. Maybe that's wrong, but that, that's a tough environment, right? Yeah, it was It was a little bit crazy. You know, there had been some regulatory setbacks, you know, police had impounded cars, those kinds of things. And Nevada just being a purple state, a very purple state at the time in particular, was just a really challenging market. And it was, we used to internally talk about regulatory hacking. And, you know, that was uh, some of the role was finding a path politically to get the service stood up in a legal way and get rolling in the market. And who was the advisor? Who was leading regulatory affairs? Wasn't it Daniel Plouffe, Plouffe, David Plouffe, something like that? Yeah, Plouffe is uh, an interesting role, you know, speaking also on matters of future of work and sort of the gig economy more broadly, uh, very publicly, you know, and leading charge on a number of uh, regulatory VR topics. Got it. And then let's leap forward now and let's go to 2017. You joined 99 Taxis as COO. What was that experience like? And then what was the outcome there of 99 Taxis? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the really interesting thing I found in, you know, and I'll just say this more generally as an entrepreneur, you know, I always remind myself when we talk about it on our on our teams, product market fit is certainly not a static thing and and it's a two-sided thing, meaning one thing is what you're doing with the product. The other thing is the markets that you choose. And interesting about, about the gig economy was that the best product market really in the world, ride sharing, was in Latin America, in particular in secondary cities in Latin America. The kind of city that has 3 million, 5 million, 6 million people is just perfect for a service like Uber or for 99 taxis. You've got a really ready pool of labor. You've got a ton of underemployed folks all around the city and in the surroundings, and you've got a really sort of snarled infrastructure and lack of infrastructure and terrible traffic and other inconveniences. Then you've got an emerging middle class, upper middle class folks with not a lot of time, but plenty of disposable income to spend on services. So if you look at services like 99 Taxis, like Rappi, like Uber, these are services that just fit super well in big Latin American cities. And uh, that was... Part of the motivation, and it was just a, a wonderful experience, and really a chance already to do a future of work company and a scale up 
in a way that was more beneficial to both sides, more beneficial to the company, but then also much more beneficial to the workforce. Uh, you know, 99 Taxis was the, the local favorite and, and the preferred brand and sort of the Brazilian startup that had grown up and tried to do everything right by all the stakeholders. And that was, that was very unique and very refreshing working there and, and help scaling up that platform. And as you alluded to, uh, we had a fantastic result. We were able to 10x the business very quickly. I led the charge together with a, a number of uh, amazing operators in building up the platform and rolling out the platform across a, a bunch of cities. We had a great technology partnership with Dini Shusheng from China on a number of topics, and we were able to sell the company for a billion dollars just a few quarters later after taking our Series C. It was quite an event and quite a success story for the local market in that ecosystem in Brazil that hadn't had a lot of exits yet at that time. And I think I read as well, that was Latin America's first unicorn. Is that correct? It was. First unicorn, clean unicorn exit in that Brazilian ecosystem. Yeah, in particular. What did you learn from that entire experience? So we can you kind of rope in Uber to that and you know, combine these stories together. But like that whole journey there, like what did you learn? Well, I think what you learned is on a very fundamental level, what it means to bring a service to the world in a very impactful way. And all of us who are out there building technology companies, we're all having impact in our own ways. I think what's very unique about a lesson like that, and one that was possible, is still possible in some parts of the gig economy, is the transformative nature you can have on a city and on the lives of millions of people. And whether it's providing, you know, work and additional earnings, in the case of 99, well over a million working class people who are working on our platform each day to, you know, helping solve transportation problems in big cities, just the incredible transformative nature of tech done right. And I think one of the secondary learnings is, is really, you know, our sort of job as the steward's of capital and our functioning as, as entrepreneurs to deploy that capital really efficiently. And, you know, 99 was, we pride ourselves, we were able to get to our first billion dollars of GMV, having spent $50 million. So that's a, a 20x ratio, which is, which is to this day, one of the most efficient scale-ups that's ever been in the technology industry. And I think a big part of that, you know, we talked about product market fit, but it's also, it's just being very thoughtful and planful in terms of how you're sort of rolling the service out and, you know, these growth activities and, you know, essentially just not doing careless things, still experimenting a lot, but being very planful in the way you build up the company. Uh, lots and lots of lessons in there. There's, you know, at some point there's a book in there. We just, we had a, a ton of amazing learnings from that scale up. Now let's switch gears and let's talk about everything that you're building today and, and what the company does. So just at a very high level, can you paint a picture for us of what the product does? Yeah, sure. So Movo is our company and, and we started Movo essentially to take that technology, take the gig economy platform per se, and to refine it and to use it as, as a vessel for change for a lot of industries that employ millions and millions of frontline workers, but are kind of stuck with, you know, some combination of pen and paper and old ERPs and these really antiquated processes. We built the platform and began sort of our presence in the market and ramping up in the market really right in the days and weeks before the pandemic hit. 
And throughout the pandemic, really our main value out there and the impact we were able to have was in providing access to jobs and making sure that food manufacturing, a number of logistics and last mile logistics companies and companies like that, some medical device manufacturing and others, we're all able to kind of keep the trains on time and keep running. And so we were running around the countries that we operate in, sort of plugging those labor gaps. And as the platform has evolved and now sort of the economy's evolved and the pandemic's now in our rear view mirror, the value to the platform and, and that we're having out there in the world is more just in terms of like it's evolved into, yes, having a very frictionless onboarding and hiring experience, but more importantly, having a very modern real-time experience in the workplace. In other words, mobile is a workforce platform that's on your device, it's on your supervisor's device, it's in head office, and the whole company is using it to make sure that everybody's deployed in the right way, in the right role at the right time, managing tasks, managing schedules, doing all of these things automatically and with a lot of smart systems to make sure that that the workforce is deployed correctly. So it's really kind of become that Uber platform for anybody who's running a really large retail or logistics or healthcare company. And just to, to recap some of the numbers I read on the website, you decrease time to hire by up to 80%, eliminate time fraud by 50%, increase HR operations productivity by four to five X, this just seems like a no-brainer. What's in the way right now from you having you know, 100 times more customers than you do today? Well, we're early stage. That's part of it is, you know, you seem small when you're early and you only have so many, so many clients that you can work with and so many workers that you can get on the, on the platform. Part of it, too, is not every company is set up for the change management that running your workforce in a real-time way involves. And so... I would characterize us more as we work with large companies who are early adopters or earlier on the technology curve, who may also just be in that moment in time when they're looking at workforce management tools and sort of thinking about, you know, how do we want to manage nurse scheduling across multiple sites and multiple dimensions, you know, or whatever the use case might be, what are we doing? You know, in developing markets about the informal labor problem, how are we going to assure that we can continually upskill and cross-train our people? We're looking for clients that have those kinds of use cases, those kinds of challenges and pain points, and that are in a situation to really affect change. It isn't the kind of thing that you can kind of, you know, do from, it's got to be, you know, somewhere very high in the organization and a strategic priority for the company. And those are the only clients that we're looking uh, to work with and the, the ones that we have, you know, sort of already uh, large deployments with. And can you share any numbers or metrics that highlight the growth that you're seeing today? Our audience always loves to hear metrics. So anything that you can share would be awesome. Yeah, we're early, but our paid user counts on the software deployment, our software rollout are increasing about 100% a month at the moment. But we're early, we're about six months into commercially rolling out our platform per se to our client base. And what do you think you've gotten right so far? And what do you attribute to that growth and that success? I mean, I think we're solving the frontline workforce problem in a unique and I think straightforward way in the sense that 
at the end of the day, if you want to come up with win-win situations for workers and employers, the bottom line is you got to help people be more productive. There's no sort of, you know, silver bullet. You know, if you look at the U.S., we're in a situation of a declining workforce. We've got more people retiring than ever before. We've got fewer people entering the workforce. We've got a lot of people checking out. We're in a, in a difficult time. There's no way that you, that you can help the economy move forward without sort of going through productivity and helping, as I said, you know, helping the economy to be more productive. And we've chosen to go after the biggest target, which is you know, the productivity of the vast majority of the workforce in a country like ours. So, you know, I think that's all correct. It's a little bit more of a challenging approach and a challenging mission than if we were picking off, you know, a niche compliance topic in HR tech or something like that. And, you know, we had a widget that did X. We're really going after that bigger change. That's what I would say fundamentally what we've gotten right is the mission is right. And I think if you look at sort of the use cases that matter and the applications in particular of AI and in some of the smart systems that we build, we're hitting on the right things. We're hitting on the things that really read the cash register at our clients and the things that'll really increase the wages and the productivity of their workforce and the workers that are out there, you know, at some point in their career, looking to level up with a system like ours, they're going to get there quick. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When it comes to market category, what is the market category? Is it frontline workforce management? Is it HR automation? Like, what's the market category? I think the market category, you know, if you use sort of terminology, it would be workforce management or all-in-one HR systems or HR platform. I think really most everything pays into workforce management. And, you know, the approach that we have is fundamentally this gig approach. That, you know, let's face it, the generation coming up really needs and has kind of grown up with where you're on a platform in real time all day long with your whole team. That approach is the workforce management of the future. And that's right where our product is. And I think the other HR applications and features, they all pay into that. In other words, if we're deploying, scheduling and deploying and automatically dispatching workers to different locations or or trimming schedules, or assigning them to different different shifts, or or giving them incremental time off when the forecast and such that we're not going to have enough work, you know, tomorrow afternoon or whatever that is. All of that automation all means 10, 20% greater productivity in a large employer. And all of that stuff requires seamless hiring, it requires upskilling and training and cross-training. It requires the other areas of HR to support it or HR technology to support it. So I, I'd say it's both. It's We're both an intent platform approaching this set of problems. But the main place that we usually begin and in, in where you know clients, their pain points are usually pretty much in that HR, you know, sort of workforce management space. And then 
you know, from there, it's everything else really lives to support workforce management and support the front line. And I would say even, you know, you look at, there's a lot of talk about recruiting automation, hiring technology and everything. That's all really important. But from a technology footprint perspective, that's what you do in the minutes and hours and, and days before you have an employee. Then you've got an employee and hopefully you've got that employee for five years or 10 years. And what you do every day that they're on the floor or that they're out in the field working with you for those five or 10 years, that's where the workforce management piece comes in and where the training modules and other things that support it are so important. That's what affects productivity over that longer haul with that life cycle of that employee. It's a long answer, but I think really, I think the future, the big lever for HR technology and for AI and HR out there in the economy and the world is in better and better workforce management and that that kind of core functionality that, that we're aiming our, our teams at and the things that we're trying to solve with our clients. And I think HR leaders right now are, are probably just bombarded with different tools, different vendors trying to capture their attention. Are there any specific tactics and strategies that you're using that are really helping you rise above that noise and to connect with those HR folks? Oh, yeah, 100%. So <laughs> that's a great question and, and one we do a lot of thinking about because I think the U.S. also, I mean, with mobile, we're, we're active in a number of middle-income countries as well as in the U.S., and the U.S. is very unique in that the HR tech space is completely dominated by big companies with huge budgets. And literally, they spend billions of dollars around sort of this HR platform space. And I don't need to name names. We all know who these, these kind of cloud and ERP folks are. And then underneath it, you've got a lot of startups that just really struggle to see the light of day. And so I think it's led to a really kind of incremental and safe approach in the HR startup space where people are looking at very small slivers that they can sort of sneak through. We've had a very different approach in that we're working within the HR community and we're really working with early adopters on big problems. We're not, we're not sort of out there, you know, just trying to do everything with internet advertising or relying on cold calling or these kinds of things, but more you know, kind of in the trenches deep with big blue chip companies working on big problems. I think the other thing too is in having gone abroad as early as we did, that allowed us to get hundreds of thousands of additional workers on our platform, which was just so helpful in terms of rounding out the tech, training our models, you know, getting a very robust system across a number of dimensions. And I think that's really been a strategic advantage versus, you know, kind of other entrants in the HR tech space. You know, and where, you know, some of the things we talked about, like we have a hiring automation system that works quite well with our employee scheduling system that works quite well with our training and upskilling system. And, you know, being able to cover a number of those things and pay workers, all of those things are just, that's less integration points, that's less headaches for a company that's going to adopt a platform like ours. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 9 million so far. What have you learned about fundraising? That's a great one. I, you know. Fundraising, every entrepreneur has a, a slightly different take on it. I think we're very blessed. And I think it's just, you know, a, a sort of being a, a multiple, multiple exit, multiple scale up found, founder is just like, it gives you the ability to sort of get a lot of meetings and sort of be maybe a little bit more strategic and structured in terms of how you think about your cap table and the folks that you have around that table when it comes to sort of 
your inner circle and, you know, the various stakeholders that you have in the fundraising process and the advisors and such that you, that you put together. In our particular case, what I learned was that I think the board composition and the cap table composition, we were able to put together companies that just went very well together. And in other words, firms, institutional investors, a number of angels uh, that are just super, super helpful and have that all fit and have it feel like just a super thoughtful, supportive, and also just like super overly helpful network for our company. And, you know, and it's, it's something that, you know, you can read about it and you can experience it, but it's, it's one of those things I think each time I go through the fundraising process, it just gets, you're really benefiting from that previous experience and sort of, you know, what you've learned in terms of where you're going to find the most help and the best fit for your company. And I think in this particular case, we've, we just got, we got an amazing syndicate and cap table and I'm, I'm, I'm just super blessed. We are as a company to have all the folks that we have. That's what I would say about that. I think, you know, we've been through some things that are a little bit episodic in the sense like we raised late, we bootstrapped, we we're a profitable company bootstrapping in the first part of the pandemic and our growth. Then we raised in 2021, we raised a fairly large seed at peak market that had its own dynamics. We raised a little bit since that's had its own dynamics. It's, there's a little bit of that environmental that you can't control a ton. You know, the startup is growing and your capital needs are where they are. And, you know, the product market fit is where it is. And you're going to have to raise money, you know, along the lines of, you know, sort of how the company is progressing. And, and it's not always, you, know, you don't always get to choose, oh, I'm going to do this at peak and I'm going to do this at trough. You know, some of that stuff is forced on you by the market. But to the extent you can, getting that right set of folks around the table is really that's key. And it's really been, in this case, a blessing. Now, let's just imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? The number one piece of advice would probably have been to probably have raised money earlier because I think we had, you know, the bootstrapping phase and it's a lot of founders would say exactly the opposite, you know, bootstrap as long as you can, or God, I wish I had bootstrapped. I think in our particular case, the fundraising process and just we could have run a lot faster in the early part of the pandemic if we had been well funded and not bootstrapping and not sort of having to fund our growth out of profits out of the ongoing business. You know, that would have been the main thing. And, you know, I think other than that, it's, that's always, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's that big picture vision that you're building? What do you want the world to look like and the company to look like? I want the company, the company first and in my extension of world. But I think our goal is to make a win-win and an improvement in, like I said, the productivity for companies, but also the standard of living for tens of millions of frontline workers. This is the technology. There aren't a lot of silver bullets when you talk about the frontline worker problem. And it's slightly different in different parts of the world. But, you know, fundamentally, this problem of sort of stagnating productivity, stagnating wages, you know, being overworked. I think if you look at that problem, our platform is at least it's one of the few answers that technology in a really scalable way has come up with for that problem. And I think having a platform like ours out there, I think finding other broad technology solutions that allow 
big workforces to be more productive and earn a respectable wage that you can raise a family on. I think being able to do that at scale is really what we're about. And, and that's the main thing that I would like to see changed in the world. It's more, more technology for good at scale. I think the other, the flip side of that is it really does call upon corporate leaders. And it's not, you know, there are a lot of early adopters. There are a lot of corporate leaders who are leaning in and work to help solve the frontline worker problem. And there could always be more. I think my challenge to corporate leadership is always the technology exists and it's hard. Change is hard. But the other side of a change initiative like this is, you know, it is 10, 20% more productivity in your company. It is that drops to the bottom line. That means higher wages. That means you're able to be out there as a high road employer, having a big impact on the communities that you're operating in. You know, it's always easy to not do that and to just go to, you know, through your kind of daily job and be change averse and, you know, risk averse and, and conservative in your decisions. But the extent that you can lean in on the implementation of productivity and enhancing technology, you are just doing good in the world. And I think that's the other side of it. And, you know, one of my personal passions and definitely, you know, one that we, a discussion that we have all the time in our day-to-day, whether it's, you know, arguing and advocating on behalf of workers and classes of workers for better pay or better working conditions or, or better time or, you know, advocating on behalf of, of putting better technology into a workplace or, or improving safety standards. These are all things that we do on a very regular basis with our clients and with our potential clients out there in the market. Amazing. I love it. And I, I love the vision and love everything that you're doing. Jason, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders listening in want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Thanks, Brett. The easiest way to get in touch with us is at movo.co. That's M-O-V-O dot C-O. And you can also find us on LinkedIn under my name or under, under Movo for our company. Amazing. Well, thank you again for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building, and, and share some of those lessons that you learned early on in your career at Uber and 99. This is a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, and I think our audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks again for having me on, Ray. All right. Cheers. Take care. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. 